Well, my name is Jacob Hunter, um, if you don't know me. Um, and today I'm going to open up with John 17. So if you could pull out your Bible, that'd be great. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from John 17 to kind of set us up for, the, for what we're talking about today, which is this chapter on how to love the world. So I'm going to start in verse 6. I'm going to read all the way through verse 19. It's the section of the prayer where Jesus is praying um, specifically for his disciples who are there in front of him. Um, So from John 17, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. I'm on verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. As you read that passage, you'll notice that Jesus, right offhand, mentions the world over and over again, right? He talks about the world, how they're not of the world, he's not of the world, how he sent them out into the world. But as I read that passage, I can't help but feeling a sort of tension. Did you feel that in the passage? Jesus says that his disciples are not of the world, that they're called to be separate from the world that they're in, but he never prays, he tells God specifically, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. It's the age-old adage, right? That we're in the world, but not of the world. There's this tension that we inherently have while we're living as believers here. There's this guy, G.K. Chesterton. He's a great theologian. And he's, he put it this way. I thought it was helpful. He said, we have to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed. For those of you from TCS, maybe you're getting a Shrek flashback. Don't get that. <laughs> to be stormed. And yet as our own cottage to which we can return at evening. And there's that paradox, right? That the world is, is not our home. And yet in a way, it's our home where we live right now. And so there's this tension that we have to live in that ultimately when we talk about this topic of worldliness, we have to navigate that. Um, And over the past couple weeks, um, men in our class have kind of walked us through this idea of worldliness and helped us with this tension. So the first week, Nate got up and talked about the idea of worldliness from 1 John 2.15. And then Mark Werner, Mark Jacobson, John, and Jeff kind of applied that biblical idea of worldliness to media, to music, to stuff, and then to clothes. And then today we're doing the last chapter in the book, which as was already mentioned is called How to Love the World. And I did tell Nate I must be the worldliest person he knows because I was given this this particular chapter. Um, But I found it to be a really helpful chapter. And and honestly, it had so much good information. It's a lot, but it's really good. And it was really helpful for me 
as I thought about this idea of this tension that we live in, of being in the world but not of the world. I just want to read you real quick some from the chapter. And again, I think it was a really good chapter, so a couple times I'm going to read some of what the author said. His name's Jeff Perswell. I think it's just really helpful, and so I just want to read a little bit of it. He said, It would be tragic indeed if we ignored, diluted, or otherwise marginalized the command this book began with. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It would be equally tragic if we defined our relationship with the world simply in terms of negation. For John's gospel affirms both God's love for the world in John 3.16 and his intention that we be in the world in John 17.18. If previous chapters have encouraged us not to love the world, this final chapter will examine how we should love it, exploring ways Christians can live faithfully in this present age. He asks, what is our relationship to be with the world? How are we to relate with it? How can we imitate God's love for the world? And he says that we need clarity on those questions if we're going to live as Christians in this world. So based on the chapter, our little game plan for this morning, what we're going to do um, is we're going to start off with talking about a biblical worldview, how that has to be our solid foundation if we're going to live in this world. Then we're going to walk through three tasks that God gives us in Scripture to carry out in this world. And then really quickly at the end, we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul um, says about his existence in the world, Lord willing. So we're going to start with this idea of worldview. Can anybody tell me what a worldview is? Anybody know? Your lens for life. Your lens for life. Okay. Any other ideas about what a worldview might be? It really kind of defines itself in the word, right? It's your view of the world, right? In the book, uh, Perswell, the author, defines a worldview as a set of beliefs and assumptions about ourselves and the world we inhabit. And if that's what a worldview is, then in contrast, a biblical worldview would be a framework for understanding our existence in accordance with reality, right? Because if we believe the Bible is reality, then if we have a worldview that is biblical, then we will be viewing the world rightly, right? Because the Bible will always define rightly what the world is. So in having a biblical worldview, um, we will see the world and the universe as it actually is, and we have to have that worldview if we're going to live in the world in accordance with what Scripture says. So in the book, Mr. Percival, he takes the idea of a biblical worldview and he communicates it in four movements, which make a big story, and he says the biblical worldview can be told as a story. Does anybody want to take a stab at what those four movements might be of the biblical worldview? Kind of gets talked about a lot. Maybe anybody know what the first one might be? Somebody whispered it. I don't know who it was. God? Well, God, but creation, right? The first thing God does is create, right? And then what happens in the biblical story? Creation, then fall, and then years and years pass, Abraham, Moses, yada, 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 and then the cross, and there's redemption, okay? And then we're here now in the church, and then one day God will close everything out. And this one's kind of the hard word. What did you say? Glorification. Glorification. The word that, that he uses is consummation. So basically that everything's brought to its end. So you have creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And we have to understand the biblical worldview through the lens of the story because that's how the Bible puts forth its understanding of the world. It tells this big story about the way the world is. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of a whirlwind tour through each of these four movements of the biblical worldview to get our foundation right before we move into how we can actually then love the world. Does that make sense? Okay, so first movement is creation. So God makes the world. 
And, and on each of these slides, you'll see there are some central truths that Mr. Percival in the chapter brought out from this movement of the biblical worldview. And what he does is he offers, well, I offered with this some scriptures to kind of uh, create a biblical basis for each one. The scriptures aren't exhaustive. You could pull these from a lot of different spots in the scriptures. But I just wanted to show um, a little bit of where we're getting it. So with creation, first off, you can see that God rules everything. God created us to have fellowship with him in this world. You can see that in Genesis 1 when he makes man in his image. And then also in Genesis 1.31, we're told that the created order is good. Remember, right? At the end, God says it's very good. From there, we move to the second movement, the fall. Sin disrupts man's relationship with God, right? Basic stuff. Sin not only disrupts our relationship with God, but it messes up our relationships with one another. You see that come out right after the fall with Cain and Abel, right? Murder right away. And then sin infects the entire creation, which we see in the curse in Genesis 3. But you also see in Romans 8, where we're told that all of creation was subjected to futility, right? All of creation is groaning out for this better thing to happen. So we have creation, fall, and then like I said, Abraham, Moses, all these things happen, and we come to redemption. So God, even in Genesis, promises to conquer sin and to remove it from his creation, and then God will work in history to reveal himself to sinners and gain a people for himself. And I brought up Abraham here, Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. You could go through to David, to the prophets. God is constantly working and promising. And then finally, we see that the climax of God's saving activity arrives in the person of Jesus Christ. And I brought up Hebrews 1 here, where it says that in the previous days, it was spoke to the prophets. But now, through Jesus, this has come, this, this new gospel, this message of redemption. Um, and I know I'm going fast if people are trying to write these down, but we're just trying to create a basis for what we're doing. And the last movement is consummation. So at the end of history, um, God's people will be gathered together. Revelation 7 goes over that. God's creation will be completely renewed. So this world, all that futility will be gone. It's remade and made to be what it's supposed to be. And then God will dwell among his people. In Revelation 21, 22, that's the verse where we see that in the New Jerusalem, there's no temple, right? Or, or in the temple, God is there. Jesus is there. He's, he's the um, light even there we see. So four movements of a biblical worldview that we have. We have creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, right? And that sets up the basis of the way that we should be seeing the world, from that idea of a biblical worldview, what Mr. Perswell is going to do is he's going to move into practical ways that we should then be loving the world. But before we get there, what do you guys think? As we look through this story, this big narrative about all of the universe, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, how do you think right offhand that maybe one of these movements might affect the way that you interact with the world in your daily life? What do you think? If you understood creation better or the fall or redemption, how does it impact the way that you live? Any ideas before we move to what Mr. Percival thinks? Anybody? Stone cold silence. That's, that's sort of the gospel. Right. Like working out in our life every day. It's not something we did. Right. We left to go do something else. Yeah. The gospel is working out in our life, and so that sort of guides and directs our worldview. The other thing I was thinking is that in the absence of the scripture that's invested, yeah. the world is the default system for our worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, right? And so we have to have the scriptures to see rightly. We can't rely on the world around us to give us a biblical worldview. Um, I was actually going to even bring up 
Um, next year at TCS, I'm teaching a sixth grade class on biblical worldview, and it's, it's very young, but it's a really like intensive curriculum. And at the beginning of that chapter, the guy who wrote it from Bob Jones University Press, um, he lays Bob out, Jones? I know, but it's good. It's good. It's good. <laughs> anyway, I know I felt the same way. I right, listen, listen, calm down, calm down. But look, from the press, from the press, the guy who wrote it, he, he starts laying out his reasoning for why that sort of curriculum is even needed for like a sixth grade level. And he talks about how the world's inundating you. And even uh, me, and, me and Jeff were talking about it at one point. And if we don't catch early, kids especially, with a biblical worldview, the world will fashion a worldview before we can even come in. And Jeff, I mean, your word was, I think we're catching them too late, right, at one point. It felt like we were not getting in there early enough. So we were really grateful for that curriculum even. So that's, that's a good point, Dr. Hager. Um, so from that, we move into three God-given tasks for every believer in this world. And like any good three-point sermon, all right, good, good Baptist stuff here, they all start with the same letter. So you can remember them. That's always good. So the first point is that we're called to enjoy the world. Then we engage the world, and then we evangelize the world. Really, really rolls off the tongue. It's good stuff. Enjoy the world, engage the world, evangelize the world. All right, so we're going to start with enjoying the world. And... I hope your radar's going up a little bit, because from the series, you're probably like, whoa, right? We're talking about worldliness, and you're telling me now to enjoy the world. That seems really messed up, kind of crazy, right? Doesn't seem like something that we want to do. Um, but I think the big key that we have to remember right at the beginning is that the world that we're forbidden to love um, in, John, in 1 John 2.15 is different from the world here that we're talking about that we're supposed to enjoy. Um, there was a quote from the book that I thought was helpful. First of all, it says, The world we're forbidden to love is not the earthly creation, but the rebellious, independent, God-rejecting mindset of those who inhabit this creation. That's really, really helpful, right? So we're not supposed to not love creation. We're supposed to not love the fallen systems mankind has put into creation. That's the world in First John 2.15, which I know Nate brought up the first week, Right? So we have to see that contrast as we look. Percival in the chapter, he gives two reasons why he thinks we ought to enjoy the world, okay? So the first one he brings up is that creation is God's witness. Can somebody read to me from Psalm 19, 1 through 4? If anybody could look it up and read it, I'd be much obliged. Oh, thanks, Nate. God displays his handiwork. Day after day it speaks out. Night after night it reveals his greatness. There is no actual speech or word, nor is its voice literally heard. Yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. Its words carry to the distant horizon. In the sky he has pitched a tent for the sun. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. Um, so what we're talking about here is general revelation, right? How God has generally revealed himself in creation. Um, in Romans, even, Paul will tell us that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived um, since the beginning of the world, right? And so the point here is that creation can speak to us about God. First reason we ought to enjoy the world is because God has put messages about himself in the creation around us. So we ought to enjoy that. And then the second point is a little bit, I think, harder to grasp at first, but I think it's really helpful. It's just that creation is God's gift. And that can sound weird, too. But you look at Genesis 2, right? God gives the garden to man. 
Even the word Eden, which I, I found this out this week, I thought was interesting. The name Eden itself means pleasure or delight. And God gives this Garden of Eden and says, all the trees are good for food, right? Except for the one. The whole thing was a gift for Adam and Eve. Um, can somebody look up 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, and then I'd, I'd ask you to read six seventeen as well, if you don't mind, if somebody would mind looking that up for me and reading it for us. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Okay, and 6.17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Yeah, that last part, right? God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I think you could equally say with that first part of the beginning of the book we talked about, is this first in your Bible, 1 John 2, 15? You can say the same thing about 1 Timothy 6, 17. Is that book, is that verse in your Bible? That God gives us everything richly to enjoy. Now again, this is not a license for you to indulge in your sin patterns. This is not a way for you to say, oh, well, I'm sorry, I was just enjoying the world. No, that's not a good excuse and that isn't going to work. But the reality is that God has given us this creation to enjoy. Again, Mr. Percival has some interesting thoughts. He says, it may sound strange to ears tuned to discern danger, and I'll talk about the world. But Paul seems, listen to this, Paul seems just as concerned about a failure to appreciate creation as he is about the tendency to worship it. Did you get that? He's just as concerned about a failure to appreciate creation as he is about the tendency to worship it. To be sure, sin has worked its mischief in the natural world. The physical world itself was subjected to futility, and sinful humanity persists in its relentless worship of the creation rather than the creator. But for the heart transformed by the gospel, the physical world holds great promise as a worship-producing source of pleasure and provision that opens the eyes to God and engenders worship of God. I wonder what your thoughts are on that, because I feel like this is, it's different than what we talked about. Anybody have any ideas or questions, thoughts about it? Not that I might not be able to answer it, but I'd love to hear this idea of enjoying the world. No? I was thinking... Um, I think it's easy yeah. to enjoy everything. Yeah. I'm talking to so many people. Yeah. Gardens, flowers, hills, right. the beauty. The, I think for the Christian, a lot of it just goes into natural praise, because we do understand he made this for our beauty. Sometimes I think about heaven when I think about creation. Yeah. I mean, we're enamored and overwhelmed with the beauty of our earth right. when the world is the heaven and the new earth going to be like. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's easy to talk, yeah, exactly, especially with nature. But I think this idea of enjoying what God has given us can go even beyond nature, right? How God has, no, no, I think, like, I think what you said was really, really good. But I'm just saying, like, I'm not saying that bad. Because the way you looked at me just now. No, Jane looks like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, Jane, I'm not saying that, Jane. I would never, Jane. I would never. Um, now, listen. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, I mean, it even goes to culture, right, in a way, that God has given us. He's made us in his image, and now we're creators who can create in his image. And so, therefore, people can make things that have common grace that points to his attributes because that's now inside of us. That's a big idea. It's a hard idea to navigate. I'm not going to give you all the answers to navigate it, but I think it's there. You even talk about something like architecture, the way that we have this building and somebody made it. Or you could talk about um, you know, history, that people can study it, or science. I mean, it goes in a lot of directions. Right. Doesn't appreciate, doesn't thank God yes. for the creation. And then fears it, worships it instead of the mm-hmm. creator. So one of the things that I, I do with my kids, just as a matter of 
matter of course is you know, we thank you God for all the good things that you give us to enjoy. Right. And that's just that attitude of gratitude. Yeah. That, uh, that, that, I mean, we live in the world, we're physical beings, mm-hmm. we're spiritual beings. And so yeah. if we don't appreciate what God has given us, we become crusty. Right. No, I agree with that. I agree. Um, it actually made me think about um, with having this now responsibility that we have to study the world around us, to enjoy the world around us. This week, um, there were images released from the James Webb Space Telescope. I don't know if you guys saw any of these. Um, but, I mean, it was, they were beautiful. And there were multiple ones that were released out. And it's just the outer edges of space. They said it's the, I think it's the farthest out they've ever taken pictures of. But, I mean, even the deepest recesses of space point to the Lord. This points to God. God tells us that he has laced about himself, his attributes here. This is where we can learn about him, and we ought to enjoy this. I mean, even something like this, when we see it, it should lead us to know God better and then to imitate God. Even maybe you see uh, pick colors here, or maybe something about it engenders something of a musical quality or a story, and we can imitate God as a creator when we see this and what he's done in his creation. Um, or even just to delight in God more and that he's a beautiful God who made beautiful things for us to enjoy. And it's a wonderful thing. Uh, did you have something? Yeah, so I, I think it would have been a cleaner word if you would use creation instead of the world. Okay. I think you said enjoy creation. Just think about everything we can enjoy as in creation. Right. We don't enjoy this, the worldly system. Okay. The cosmos. You know, we, right, and so, it is some world, word jumping, right? Like word yeah, play. Yeah, so I think, but it, Danger is that we have a propensity to worship creation. Right. And that's a Romans 1 thing, those who worship creation. So I, yeah. I realize, too, that we're to enjoy creation but not to worship it. That's for the purpose of worshiping God. Yeah. So we I get that. that in, our, in the fall. And so to, to enjoy the world is so nebulous that you think that that could be this. People can take that right. Depending on their worldview. I appreciate that. I get so that. I, I like the word creation. Yeah, that's helpful. It's very, it's good to be clear. Absolutely. Um, well, the second task that Percival brings up in the chapter is this idea of engaging the world, engaging the world. So not only we're called to enjoy the world, but we're called to engage the world. That means that we can't be monks who retreat away from every aspect of society and try to do our own thing. We're called to engage with every part of life. Um, so would somebody be able to read Genesis one twenty eight for me? Genesis one twenty eight. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Cool. So theologians refer to that verse and what's going on there as the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. And the idea is basically that God creates the earth. It's very good, but creation in a way is not complete, right? He now has tasked us with things that we ought to do in creation in order to further his work, right? We're subduing the earth. We are taking away, from, uh, taking what he's done and using it for his glory. Um, Perswell says that this development does not simply, uh, it includes not simply the earth itself, but also the vast array of cultural possibilities that God built into the natural order, including family, science, commerce, technology, government, and the arts. And I thought that was, uh, and I think I have that up here as a slide. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful thought. 
and that God has given us and given us this task of engaging his world and um, using, working in all of it for his purposes and, and in all of life. Um, Abraham Kuyper, who was a, uh, the, he was a prime minister of the Netherlands, I think, and he also was a theologian, he had this quote, it's really helpful. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Man, it's huge. We're every single bit of life we ought to engage for God's glory. Um, and I just want to carry that thought of engaging the world in three different directions. So, as followers of Jesus, we're called to engage the world, and, and first thought here would be at work, right? At work. And that's difficult. That's hard. Oftentimes, we think of work as a part of the curse after the fall, right? But work was given before the fall in Genesis 2. Man was called to work in the garden. Work is a good thing from God. Martin Luther referred to our work as a mask of God. I thought this was brilliant. He said our work is a mask of God because through our work, God providentially cares for his creation and provides everything that he needs to have happen. That's crazy if you think about it, that you are an extension of God's providential work in the world by the little things that you do at your job, no matter what it is. You know, maybe you, you sell cars so people can now transport from A to B and do what they need to do. Or you work at a grocery store so that people can get the food that they need. Or maybe you're an accountant and you help people steward their finances well. Whatever you do, you can be part of God's work and providentially caring for his creation. And you can in turn serve others through that, serve God through your work, and then love others properly by, being part, by recognizing your role in what God is doing in his world. It's huge. Um, even from work, you can carry that out to at home, to what we do at home. And that would include our roles at home as fathers, as mothers, as sisters, brothers, grandparents, um, all of that. There's no higher calling there. Um, in this chapter, Perswell, I just thought this was beautiful, and I want to read it real quick. He takes this idea of engaging the world at home and applies it specifically to motherhood. And I just thought it was really helpful. Um, made me think of my wife. Um, but he said, despite our culture's pervasive hostility to the idea, motherhood is a calling from God and no calling is higher. Although scripture calls husbands to provide loving leadership to their homes, it's the incessant labors of mothers that day by day, year after year, instill biblical values and inculcate a Christian culture in the home. Who can measure the long-term effects of nurturing helpless infants, supervising wandering toddlers, disciplining self-willed children, and counseling self-absorbed adolescents. A family outings planned, traditions built, memories made, books read, songs sung, scripture taught. That's why motherhood belongs under the heading Engage the World. No one shapes generations or fashions cultures more than mothers. It's a huge vision for the way that we're engaging the world in our homes. And it's it's wonderful. And it's it, it takes you away from this idea of, you know, now there's this sacred, there's this secular part of my life. When I'm at church, when I'm tithing, when I'm singing, I'm honoring God. No, every single aspect of our lives is under Jesus, our Lord's domain. And he calls us in all of those spectrums of our life to engage his world as his followers for his glory, right? Um, and then just, just one more domain, which is really just capturing everything else, is all of life. In the chapter, Percival applies this even to, to leisure, right? Even to our sleep. He says we do that for God's glory. Um, even our education, when you're at school, if that's you. Um, could somebody, if you don't mind, read 1 Corinthians 10.31? No, I'm asking for a lot of Bible flipping. And Nate and Jeff have already done their duties, so it has to be someone else now, unfortunately. It's really sad. 
First Corinthians ten thirty one. Right? Familiar verse. But we engage the world in all of life for God's glory. Last task that we have here is to evangelize the world. And this is where you get to typical like Sunday school fair, right? We're in like the good good domain, more more of a comfy place for us, right? But it's really not that comfortable, right? Because most of us when we hear this sort of subject, you get convicted and you think about, well, I had this opportunity and I didn't, and I, I should have said this, but I didn't say that, and oh, I know my neighbor, I really should invite them over for dinner, but I haven't done it yet, and we go in all sorts of directions when we hear about this idea of evangelism. But what Percival suggests in the chapter is that we have to actually, with evangelism, go back to the biblical worldview for locating ourselves in God's story and knowing what he's doing, right? Because we live now in between redemption and consummation right? This is the church age. And as part of that, God has now given us as part of his big story, like we're active players in that story, his task of being ambassadors for his kingdom on earth. And we're sharing his gospel with those around us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? It's the great commission. Um, And and there Jesus says that we're supposed to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, right? Um, There's a, he links that idea of the great commission to that creation mandate we talked about earlier from Genesis 1, 28. And Percival says the redemptive mandate of the Great Commission makes the fulfillment of the creation mandate possible. Only through Christ's redeeming work can God's redemptive purposes for this world be realized. You see that? God had intentional, uh, original purposes in creation. We fell. We can't do it right. But now through the power of the gospel, the world can now be, is working back towards this new creation, this consummation. And when we share the gospel with others, we're allowing them to move back to the image of God that they were created to live in and now to honor and glorify him. So it's not just the creation mandate anymore. We've now been given the great commission as well to share the gospel with those around us, to make disciples. Um, in the chapter, first of all, it gives just two little reminders about evangelism that I thought were helpful. Um, The first one is that we're called to practice evangelism both individually and corporately. So we only have two more verses to read. So you only have two more opportunities. This is really you. 1 Peter 2.9. Was my mind reading that for me? 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should... Show forth the praises of him who has called you out of the darkness into this marvelous light. Thank you. Thank you. So in 1 Peter 2.9, you can see this collective nature, right? That as Christians, not only we have a personal responsibility to share the gospel, but God's purpose is that then the people who the gospel is shared to form together to form his church, right? And his church demonstrates the new kingdom which is coming at consummation. And so evangelism isn't only an individual effort, it's a team effort. Um, In the chapter, uh, Percival says that God holds up his church as exhibit A for the reality of the gospel. As people called out of a fallen world, living transformed lives with transcendent values, the church displays the character of God, illustrates the power of God, and exemplifies the saving purposes of God. Who dreamed that their church participation was so significant? I thought that was really helpful, that as the church, we are evangelizing not only as individuals, what we're called to do, But it's a team effort that we do together for God's glory. And then the second reminder here is that our verbal evangelism 
should be accompanied with redemptive action. So Matthew 5. Can somebody read this for me? Matthew 5, 13 through 16. It's your last opportunity. Nobody's jumping. I mean, I'd be jumping on it if I were you. It's really exciting. I'll read it. Oh, okay. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In order to people light a lamp and put it under a basket and put on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good. Yeah, the last part, right? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, so the reminder here is that the urgency of our evangelism, like to verbally share the gospel with others, doesn't mean that all other activity in the world somehow doesn't have eternal significance, right? Every single part of our lives should be used to, in a way, demonstrate the effects of the gospel and to create a testimony wherein we can share the gospel with others. Percival says our daily lives in all their variety, vocation, relationships, study, community involvement, artistic endeavors, leisure, have the potential, when pursued for God's glory, to demonstrate something of the gospel and its effects. And I want to be really clear here. This isn't advertising for some sort of social gospel, some sort of woke movement. That's not what's going on here. It's simply a call to live out the gospel as we share the gospel. So our deeds simply adorn the gospel message. And we don't change the culture thinking that we're, our, we don't think we're going to suddenly transform the culture and change everything and bring God's kingdom now. It's only at, at Jesus' return that the culture will be finally changed. Our responsibility is simply to share the gospel with those around us, and good deeds, when used appropriately, can lead others to ask about the hope that's in us, right? 1 Peter 3.15. And that's how they ask about the gospel, and we can then share the truth with them. So closing here, after these, these three points, enjoying the world, engaging the world, evangelizing the world, I just want to look really quick at what the Apostle Paul, how he navigated his existence in the world, just from this verse. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. You see, because even though we have these ideas, right, that we have a biblical worldview we stand on, we know these three tasks God has given us in Scripture to use in the world as we seek to love the world and care about the world and live in the world, there's still a tension, right? We're in the world, but not of the world. We want to avoid worldliness while being good stewards of our time here on this earth. And what Paul says is that in that uh, effort to navigate that tension— he looked specifically at one moment in the biblical narrative, which is redemption, the cross. And Paul says that in the cross, he's, he's dead to the world now, and the world is then dead to him. And so as through the prism of what Jesus has done on the cross, he can then interpret his life in the world. And so I just want to close really quick with how Percival closes the chapter um, in, in talking about this verse, Galatians six fourteen, and then I'll pray, and then we're done. Percival says, What part does the cross play in your life? Does it tower over all the realities of your earthly existence? Does it define who you are and how you live? When we see our lives in light of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, everything will be different. We won't be enamored of a fallen world that opposes God. It is for such a world that our Savior died. Nor will we ignore the world, untouched by its God-glorifying potential, or unmoved by its needs. Rather, we'll take our place in this world, enjoying God's gifts, fulfilling God's purposes, and giving our lives to see the gospel proclaimed 
sinners saved and gods glorified. That's where the story, God's story, is heading. In ever-increasing ways, may we each take our place in this grand story and set our hope on its glorious conclusion. Let me pray to close this out. Lord God, I know this is a a difficult subject, and and there is a a paradox in your word of sorts, a tension there, Lord, that as followers of Christ, God, we are called to be in this world, but not of it. God, I pray that you would give us clarity to see how we can avoid worldliness while being salt and light here. Lord, that you would help us to understand your purposes in Scripture for us. Lord, that we would enjoy the creation that we live in, that we would engage the world in every moment of our lives, and that we would seek to evangelize those around us and share your good news, God, that Jesus came and lived a life we couldn't live, died a death that we deserved, and rose victorious over sin, hell, death, and the grave. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of that and that we would live as your ambassadors here. In Jesus' name, amen.